Amen. Thank you, Yuri. What a wonderful talent, and I'm convinced raised to the highest exponential value by the use of the Spirit of God in her hands and in her heart. Thank you so very much for uh, presiding or for playing for us this morning. In chapter 11 of the book of Proverbs, uh, we shall read in just a moment, but before we do that, Brother Joe Jordan, you're on your way up here because you are part of the sermon today. And so uh, uh, you're coming up here. I actually have two parts of the sermon here today, at least, actually more than that, as you will see in a moment. Dr. Land is still here. He's part of this, but you heard him yesterday. So Joe Jordan, come right here to the microphone, if you will. And uh, I'm gonna ask you a question or two, if you will. Now, you're not near as old as I am, but you are in your ancient years. Uh, Yes, it's, it's amazing. And, uh, and we're delighted to have you here today. Um, you got your start as a young evangelist working for whom? Jack Wurzel. Got to get up of the microphone where they can hear you. Okay, here we are. Yeah, and you were working for whom? Jack Wurzel. And, uh, of course, nobody here ever heard Jack Wurzel. So tell us a little bit about him. What kind of a guy was he? Jack Wurtson was a dynamic evangelist. He started off in the streets of New York City preaching on a soapbox. And from there, he started a radio program. And then from there, he went to Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, and then around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. His real heart was a heart for youth. And for that reason, he started Word of Life to reach the youth with the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And what pictures you have that you have kept across these years? Uh, pictures of uh, the appearance in Madison Square Garden with literally tens of thousands of kids out there listening to him preach. And uh, did he always faithfully present the gospel in every message? Always. Uh, you mean he didn't preach without presenting the gospel? Never. All right. And, and so that sort of stuck in your own soul, didn't it? It did. And uh, as a young minister of the gospel, were there times when you had some pretty harebrained ideas? Of course. <laughs> and so how did Jack Wurtson fit into all of that? Jack Wurtson was a constant encouragement and uh, he was like a father. Uh, many times uh, he would come to me and he would say, Joe, he said, now listen, uh, you just stay straight Stay right down the middle and do the work of God. And so then your own life as an evangelist developed. And uh, one of the most remarkable things that many of us have had the privilege ever of seeing is Word of Life Argentina, where you've spent, uh, you and your wife have spent so much of your lives serving uh, among those young people there. Just describe briefly what you do in Word of Life Argentina. It's all about evangelism and discipleship. Uh, we landed there, we were 24, uh, hit the streets and started uh, winning people to Christ and discipling them. We started Bible clubs and churches, and from there a camp and then a Bible institute that literally now is touching the world with over 13,000 graduates in countries around the world. From there, 800 missionaries went out with the gospel of Christ, uh, right? Not Americans, but Argentines and others they're trained. And uh, today, if we were to go there, what would we see? 
Well, we started off with that just a little plain feel. Matter of fact, when we started off, my wife and I slept in a pup tent, and a daughter we uh, adopted slept in a peach crate, but now you'll see some 80 buildings and 186 or 183 acres, and uh, students from some 34 countries around the world. And uh, God has obviously blessed that in a wonderful way, but you yourself have become uh, something of a curator on top of being an evangelist and a missionary and a preacher and a pastor. Uh, you have preserved, and thankfully, he is giving it all to Southwestern Seminary, and so you're going to see a lot of this in years to come. You have preserved some of the greatest preaching that has ever been preserved on tapes, I think wire recorders and that kind of thing, um, all the way back that far. But of course, we're putting that on CDs and so forth so that, I can, so that our people can, can hear the same things that you heard uh, as you were a young preacher. You were listening to who besides Jack Wurtson? Who else were you hearing? Wow. Um, Lewis Perry Chafer, uh, John Walbert, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, Lehman Strauss. Um, I have some 2,500 messages on my iPod. I listen to every night when I go to sleep. Yeah, my messages have affect people that way too. It puts them right to sleep. But uh, as a matter that, of fact, I might wake up in the middle of the night arguing with them about a text. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, would you say that in some sense of the word, all of these pastors, these preachers, these evangelists that you just mentioned, uh, some of them actually uh, professors at Dallas right. Theological mm -hmm. Seminary, including the founder of Dallas Theological mm -hmm. Seminary, would you say that they became your counselors? Without a doubt, uh, still today, and uh, you get certain nostalgia, and I listen to many messages, and I continue to do so, because education is a continuing thing throughout your whole life. All right, but that, this is not just uh, book education, this is also education for the spirit. Of course. And uh, how would you differentiate between those two? There's an interesting chapter written on portraits of Dwight Pentecost called Balancing the Academic with the Spiritual at the Seminary. And um, you have to understand that if it's not led by the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and brings it home, the sword of the Spirit, and brings conviction and change in lives. So every true change, every true spiritual work is through the Holy Spirit of God. I want to ask our people to thank you for all that you have done and for being our uh, interviewee today because, of course, he didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, they've just come over to have lunch with us today, and uh, so he had no idea he'd be part of the sermon, but literally he is because in Proverbs chapter 11, we begin reading in verse 7, and what we're really going to focus on is the very last two verses we read, verses 13 and 14. So listen to this. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. That's the end of it. It's all over for him. Whatever he has done, that stands, but the rest of it is gone. The hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. Instead, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous man will be delivered. 
When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. Now listen carefully to these last two verses. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. And then the final verse in verse 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. A man said to me one day, if you could leave only one thing with your students at Southwestern Seminary, what one thing would you ask them to do? And I said immediately, I would ask them to read the book of Proverbs until it becomes almost a matter of memorized text. They know it so well, and they are so guided by its message that it becomes a part of their ministry. I would save many of you from great tragedy if I could do that, if I could just get you to read and to bring to your heart the message of the book of Proverbs. Now, I want you to notice three things in this book, uh, Proverbs, in the text that we just read. First of all, you will notice that when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Are you aware of the news of the day? Are you watching what's coming out of the nation's capital? Are you seeing that which blankets the whole nation? And is it any wonder to you when you see what is happening in the nation's capital and throughout our world that the suicide rate is now spiraling upwards in tragic form? Is it any strangeness to you that we have shooting after shooting taking place? Is it odd to you that people are disrupted in whatever it is they want to pursue and they can't seem to find a way to be happy? The fact of the matter is that when the wicked rule, that is an inevitability. My wife and I have privileged, been privileged to go to many countries of the world, as you well know. I will never forget my first two trips into Iran or into Iraq. When we went into Iraq, it was during the days of Saddam Hussein. And uh, there is a will always on the part of the people, however much oppressed and depressed. There is a will among some to uh, live and to see out their lives and to find some uh, small credibility of happiness in the world. The people of Iraq were extremely receptive to us. We would walk down the street and speak to the shopkeepers and they would welcome us into their shop. Wouldn't you like to spend a little money here in this shop, of course? And, and they would welcome us, but if they could possibly get us aside where no one else would hear, they would say things like, you know, we really love American products. We prefer your electronics to any other in the world. 
Oh, is that right? Well, we, were, we prefer Japanese electronics in our country, but uh, we're glad you like ours. And, and uh, we would carry on a conversation like that. Finally, they'd get around and say, when they looked both directions to be sure nobody was close enough to hear, we love your country. We love your government. We thank God for you. We pray for you all the time. Now, these were Muslim people for the most part, and they're saying this, we pray for you and we thank God for you. Why is that? Because they knew the sorrows through which they were passing and the heartaches that they faced and the disruption of life whenever, for example, the uh, uh, Olympic team of Saddam Hussein did not do as well as he hoped they would do in the Olympics. They would come home and some of them were actually killed because they didn't perform as well as they should have. And the whole country was in agony and there was rejoicing when Saddam Hussein was overthrown. Now that is always the truth and the Bible points to the fact that when the righteous are in leadership, then the city rejoices. Now he goes from that to a very important point. Verse 13, a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is faithful in spirit conceals a matter. When you think about our churches today, what do you think is the most alarming sin that occurs in the midst of our congregations? Oh, somebody says, for sure, it is adultery. For sure, it is sexual sin. Now, I do not minimize that for one single solitary moment. It's always tragic when that occurs. But the truth of the matter is that that occurs very seldom. When you consider all the churches that we have, 40,000 churches and ministers of the gospel, it is amazing how many of them stay true to the gospel in terms of the family and their relationships and their commitments to their spouses. It is absolutely wonderful. Let me tell you the favorite sin of the church today. The favorite all-encompassing sin of the church today is holy gossip. Now, I gave it a modifier there that is false. It is unholy gossip wherever it occurs. You see, when you have a piece of gossip that you want to pass along to people, it empowers you. You know something nobody else knows, or at least you think you do. And so you pass it along. If I were to identify the number one sin of most seminaries, including this one, it would be unholy gossip. The desire to raise one's status somehow because you think you know something that you want to pass on. I tell you what, it would be an amazing thing to see a church of the Lord Jesus Christ out there that honored that one verse of Scripture. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean, first of all. It doesn't mean that you hide sin. doesn't mean that you conceal sin. As a matter of fact, there are very specific images in the Scripture 
of what we ought to do when we know that a brother is sinful in his behavior. Now, first of all, it has to be sinfulness in behavior. Differing over certain subjects does not constitute necessarily a sin. That's simply a difference of opinion. And so we're not talking about that. We're talking about when a brother is found in sin. First of all, you confront the brother personally and face him with his iniquity and ask him to repent of that sin. If he fails to hear you, the Bible is clear. You take two or three brethren. A thing is established in the mouth of three witnesses. And so now he knows that there are others who are seeing this behavior as appalling. And you face him with that and you ask him to come to repentance. If he refuses, then the Bible says you tell it to the elders and let them him deal with them quietly in the church office. Thank you. I appreciate that note. There is nothing said about that. What it says is, tell it to the church. Oh my goodness. You mean you're going to tell this matter to the whole church? That's exactly what you're going to do. If you do it the biblical way, you tell it to the church because if it is wrong, the church corrects the three witnesses. But if it is right, the whole church deals with the brother and makes it clear to him that he is greatly loved by the congregation. We are weeping over what he has done. We are praying for his repentance and we're asking him to repent. And then if he does not, the church, because it is congregational church government, excludes him from the fellowship. And you've sat right here with me while we showed you how to do that in a session on the Lord's Supper. And so that's true. That's how the church does it. What the church is not supposed to do is unholy gossip. Have you heard what's going on with Brother Jones? Do you know what Sister Smith is up to? That is unholy gossip. It does not do anything except temporarily give you a sense of power that you have passed along something else. Now, we have another way of doing it in the church of God. We make the unholy holy by saying, you know, we really need to be praying for uh, Dr. Land. Oh, my goodness, boy, we do need to pray for Dr. Land. And uh, why do we need to pray for Dr. Land? Well, he's just so messed up in all this stuff in Washington and, you know, he's saying this and saying the other. We need to pray for Dr. Land. Now, number one, the unholiness of the task is proven by the fact that you never stop and pray for him. All you do is just say, pray for him. And that somehow wraps it in a mantle of that which is holy, but it is still unholy to God. And if you're going to pray for him, well, then stop right there and kneel together and pray for him and ask God to intervene, but don't try to make that which is unholy holy before God. Now, there is one final thing in this passage that I want you to see, and we will shut down this short sermon. Look at this. Verse 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall. 
but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. A moment ago, I interviewed Joe Jordan. And I asked him the question, all of these people that you've been following for years, you've been listening to their sermons very carefully. Uh, you have become acquainted with the vast majority of them. He knew most of them. And as a young evangelist, you heard when you were 24, I think you said, years of age when your wife started in Argentina in a pup tent. Hey, that's the kind of commitment that we need from our young people, our willingness to go anywhere under any circumstances and serve the Lord. I don't need a huge church with a large salary. All I need is the opportunity. Lord, give me just the opportunity to start out there and, and somehow spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God will bless that. But he didn't just bless Joe Jordan alone. He used the counsel of all of those who were ahead of him to guide him in the way. Today, although uh, he is not so old as I, he is my counselor. Richard Land is my counselor. In spite of what he did to me this morning, this is my counselor, Dr. Owens. I have built into my life counselors. Now it is widely rumored that Patterson is a dictator, hopefully a benevolent dictator. He does exactly and precisely what he wants to do. That's my public image. And it is true that I do have the courage on occasion to do the opposite of what all my counselors say. I do have that courage if I am sufficiently convinced that God has spoken and pointed away to me, I may on very rare occasions not follow the counsel that God has put in my life. But you need to know that under normal circumstances, when the president's cabinet, when the deans of the various schools here, when even our faculty come to me and say, we don't think this is the right way, and you need to think about this, I hear that with unusual interest. And I usually follow that way. You know why? Because every man needs godly counsel. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. You need to put into your life as young servants of Christ a series of counselors to whom you can turn and who are most likely to come to you even if you don't turn to them and say, you better watch your direction here. It's absolutely essential. What constitutes a godly counselor? May I give you three things this morning that I hope you'll never forget. First of all, some people say, well, I have godly counsel. Most everybody I know is a Christian. That may be. That doesn't constitute a godly counselor. Unfortunately, most Christians are so subject to the world in which they live that they tend to think the world's thoughts after the world rather than God's thoughts after God. And so the fact that a man may be a born-again believer is not a sure thing that he'll be a godly counselor. But you've got to start there. 
You can never have a godly counselor who is a lost person. Oh, he may occasionally give you the right information just because he figured out the right thing, but he's not a godly counselor. To be a godly counselor, a man or a woman must be a person who has had an experience with Jesus Christ so vividly that he lives in the light of that experience with Christ. He thinks in that light. He acts and lives in that light. He is a born-again child of God. Number two, a godly counselor is a counselor who has saturated himself or herself with the Word of God. Now, that's why that rules out most mere believers in Christ because most have not read the Bible and studied the Bible until their thoughts become bibline, until they think God's thoughts after them. What I love so much about Adrian Rogers while he was alive is that when you talk to him, it was like carrying on a conversation with the Bible. Everything you said, he quoted you back a passage of Scripture that was probably obscure, just like our Lord did. When Satan is tempting him, he cites unusual passages that we wouldn't even have thought about, but which our Lord had placed in his memory already. He knew them, and they came to light at exactly the right time. A godly counselor is somebody who is a born-again believer who has so familiarized himself with Scripture that he thinks God's thoughts after him. Why is that necessary? Because the Bible says our thoughts are not God's thoughts, and our ways are not his ways. They are very different from the way man conceives of power and opportunity and glory and accomplishment. God said, if someone will be great among you, let him be your servant. Oh my, we don't like servanthood. We reject that servanthood. There's no greatness in that. Oh, but to God, that's how you become great, is being a servant. And so he turns it all around. It's all upside down. You return good for evil. You pray for those that despitefully use you. You do all those things that are contrary to nature, that are not the way the world operates. And you will do that if you're a godly counselor because you have saturated your heart in the word and the purposes of God and you see everything that way. There's a third thing that's involved in a godly counselor. Are you ready for this? Buckle your seatbelt. A godly counselor is one who loves you so much that he or she is willing to risk his friendship with you in order to tell you the truth. How many people do you have in your life who love you that much, who love you enough to tell you the truth even if it costs you your friendship? I've mentioned a couple here today. Dr. Land never had an unexpressed thought about me. A few of them have been good. Most of them have been pretty straightforward. And I get corrected. 
Joe Jordan, the better I get to know him, the more often he just lays the truth out, and I have to live with it. And Waylon Owens, the very first day he ever met me, he started correcting me, and he has done so ever since. And so it is with all of the counselors in my life. They love me amazing. It's a matter of grace, certainly, but they love me enough to tell me the truth even if they risk their friendship in doing so. You need, as a part of your experience beginning right here in seminary, to build around you a group of godly men or godly women, as the case may be, who are born-again believers, who know the Word of God thoroughly, and who love you enough to tell you the truth, even if it risks their friendship. It will save you from 10 million mistakes. May I just give you one case of it? Since Dr. Day so wonderfully referred me to the book of, or to the character of David, I call your attention to what happened in the 25th chapter of 1 Samuel when David made a entree, made an invitation to, made an approach to a man to help him out. He was on the run. Saul was trying to take his life. And so he comes to uh, this man who is a wealthy man and uh, the man is married to a beautiful, gorgeous young woman named uh, Abigail. And he comes to Nabal, her husband, and he says, could you spare me a little so my men can have something to eat? And so Nabal, whose name means the foolish one, proves that he is well-named, and he takes a slap at David and says, who is David? Why would I help him look at all the things in his own life? David is miffed about that. And so he determines that he's going to cause Nabal to pay for it, and he marches in the direction of Nabal's home, fully intending to take his life. Now, if you have never read what Abigail did, you need to read that sometime. It's one of the most amazing stories in God's Word. Here's what it says. When Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard the scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, O Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord God has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourselves, and from your own hand, then now then, let your enemies be those who seek harm for my uh, Lord be uh, as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought you, may, O oh Lord, this be enough for your young men 
and please forgive the, trans, the trespass of your maidservant. When this happens, Abigail comes with a gift for all of his men, and she says, this is my trespass. Let it be on me. Wait a minute, Abigail. What are you doing? You're not guilty of anything. By your own testimony, you said you didn't know anything about it when they came. Why are you taking the guilt for it? One of the most important things you can learn in life is go ahead and accept the blame, even if you're not guilty. Go ahead and accept the blame for things. Relieves the situation. I don't mean the way it happens in Washington. I stand responsible for this. I'm totally responsible for it, which means absolutely nothing. It means I'm sweeping this under the rug. I'm going to move on. No, take the blame for it yourself. And Abigail comes and she pleads for the life of her husband. And she says to David, God has intervened to keep you from shedding blood and avenging yourself. You know what David did? David said, blessed are you, Abigail. God has used you to catch me in my folly. You have talked about your husband being a man of folly, but gently, but thoroughly, you pointed out that I am a man of folly. I have come with the determination in my heart to kill your husband, but God sent you here to arrest me in my evil way. Now, David, what's wrong with you? What were you doing that for? David is human. You are human. You are a human being asked to enter on an inhuman task, to be a pastor of a church, to teach in the young people's division, to care for the ministry to women. You're asked to do what you cannot do. And you're so close to the forest that half the time you can't see the trees. And then things begin to come at you and it's like bullets coming at you. So much is coming at you so quick you don't know how to handle it and how to respond to it and you think you do and you think you're going to do the right thing. You better have godly counsel built in around you. Who like Abigail can say to David, God has intervened to keep you from shedding innocent blood. What a magnificent testimony to the grace of God. Pray for your counselors that they will be faithful to you in all things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the privilege of fellowship with other believers. Lord, in our naivete, in our selfish, selfishness, we get tired of the people of God and we say bad things about them and we're irritated by them and we lose our patience, all of which is to say that we are arrogant unbelievably before God. Father, I want to thank you for the people of God today in a thousand churches across this nation. I know that they're weak and I know that they struggle, but Lord, they're your people. And at strategic moments, 
God, you see fit to use each of them as a counselor to us. And I pray for all of my students today, some about to graduate, some about to enter upon their life's mission, that to which you have called them. And I thank you for them, Lord, they're the finest young people in all the earth, and they're ready to go, and they are ready to give themselves. But, Lord, I do pray for them today that they will not march out into those ministries without having assembled a team around them that are godly counsel. And may they hear the word of the Lord from that godly counsel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.